Welcome to the Digital Edge with Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway. Your hosts, both legal technologists, authors, and lecturers, invite industry professionals to discuss a new topic related to lawyers and technology. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 126th edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, an information technology, cybersecurity, and digital forensics firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm Jim Calloway, director of the Oklahoma Bar Association's Management Assistance Program. Today, our topic is the Data-Driven Ethics Initiative. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. Try it for free at clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. We'd like to thank AnswerOne, a leading virtual receptionist and answering service provider for lawyers. You can find out more by giving them a call at 800-ANSWER-THE-NUMBER-ONE or online at www.answerone.com. That's www.answer-the-number-one.com. Scorpion sets the standard for law office online marketing with proven campaign strategies to get attorneys better cases from the internet. Partner with Scorpion to get an award-winning website and ROI-positive marketing programs today. Visit scorpionlegal.com slash podcast. And thanks to ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit servenow.com to learn more. We are very pleased to have as our guest, Erin Gerstenzang. In addition to running her boutique criminal law practice in Atlanta, Georgia, Erin is dedicated to helping other lawyers succeed in their practices. She is a regular speaker at CLE events across the country and helps lawyers understand legal ethics in a technology-enabled world. And I'll note she did a great presentation I set through at ABA's Tech Show 2018. She also lectures on design thinking for law firms, automation, and paperless systems, and using social media to build a legal brand. Thanks for joining us today, Erin. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Well, you know, we have this wonderful title here, Aaron, the Data-Driven Ethics Initiative, but I'm guessing that's mysterious to a lot of our listeners Then they probably haven't heard of it. So could you explain what that initiative is? Absolutely. I would love to. So the Data-Driven Ethics Initiative is a research project where we are compiling, analyzing, and organizing data about today's world of legal services in order to better draft rules of professional conduct, which will hopefully embody traditional legal ethics and relate them to our modern world. In your view, and of course, this is a question asked by somebody who works for one of these regulators, but in your view, what are the problems with the way in which attorneys are regulated? Well, that is obviously a little bit of a loaded question um, because I think that there are a lot of opinions around this particular topic. You know, I think to start, let me start 
answering that question by looking back a little to see we've come a long way. You know, it wasn't that long ago, even in the 70s, where, you know, attorney regulation was done on a hyper-local level where, you know, there weren't professional staffs and offices set up. There were a lot of opaque hearings and not a lot of transparency about what was happening. You know, and 20 years later, we had moved very far past that in the 90s, and we had sort of statewide jurisdiction and agencies with staffing and a lot of national guidance. And so, you know, here we are now, no longer in the 90s, about 25 years later. And so I think questions around what are we doing to keep moving towards, keep evolving and keep improving our system. And I think one of the ways that lawyers get stuck in regulation, because it is a privilege to be part of a profession where we do self-regulate, and that is a blessing and a curse. And a little bit of a curse insofar as, you know, lawyers tend to be, insofar as you can sort of group us all together, we tend to be a group of people who do not like change. And we like to stick to the tools for problem solving that we have that lead to consistency and like a sorry decisis for one, looking back and relying on precedent to solve any problem that may arise in the current space. And I think that that can be one of the things that holds us back in moving forward and evolving our regulatory system is an overemphasis on this or over-reliance on this tool that can help, this problem-solving tool that can be very useful in a lot of different situations relying on precedent, but can really also handicap us in a way that prevents us from moving forward. There's a lot of good examples of where this particular tool isn't so great at answering questions in the modern world. One of my favorite example is um, we see a lot, I'm a trial lawyer, so uh, a lot of my examples go, go back to things that come up in trial. But, you know, so one of the things that all lawyers will remember from law school is, you know, an exception to hearsay, excited utterance rule, right? And it's based on this notion of even if the witness can't come to court to talk um, and to say what they observed, if they made an excited utterance, you know, near the time of whatever the incident was, the burglary, the crime, whatever it was, well, then that can come in as evidence because it's a reliable statement that wouldn't necessarily need to be cross-examined because people wouldn't lie if they were talking about something they had just experienced because there wasn't enough time to formulate a lie. And this is really sort of something we've held on to since the 1800s. And that was based upon what, you know, frankly, probably the modern thought of how the human brain worked uh, and probably driven by uh, older white men who, who decided, well, this is how the human brain works. And so we will develop this exception. The problem is now we have in today's modern world, we have a lot of data where if you ask experts in how the human brain works and how people interact, there's no real data to support this notion that excited utterance is somehow more of a reliable statement than any other. And in fact, you know, the human brain doesn't take any time to lie or come up with something deceptive. So this exception that remains on the books based upon precedent really doesn't have any data to support it and it is fundamentally flawed and our system is not very well equipped to address something that's been on the books for so long. So when I think about attorney regulation, I think about this as, you know, a set of rules that have evolved and we have come up based upon the best information we had at the time and understanding, you know, what the public needs were at the time these rules came up. But now we sort of live in a world where we have experts, we have data, we can look at what's happening in the world, and, and we should have a system of regulation which allows more, allows us to look outside those tools to these other industries and other sources of information to make sure that these rules and systems that were designed by, you know, a very small 
part of the community with a very one particular viewpoint, make sure that that actually holds water in today's world with the data that we have. Well, I certainly agree with you, Aaron, that, uh, you know, we do tend to cling to the past. It is a, the lawyerly way. But, you know, it's been my view. And like Jim, I've been close to uh, legal regulation, um, even though it seems slow, I'm sure, particularly to those who, who may be younger. The evolution of this whole ethics reform, that has come extremely quickly for law. <laughs> and I know in, in industry, it's probably much faster, but it's funny because I think it's been very fast and moving quicker every year. I'm not sure you'd describe it the same way, but I'd be really interested in hearing how you would describe the current landscape of ethics reform. I do think that it's moving faster and I think it's picking up pace every year. I think it's a really exciting time uh, to be part of it. And, you know, as a latecomer, I'm very cautious to be critical of people who have come before me because so much great work has been done. So I I don't disagree with you, Sharon. I think that the change is moving very quickly. And that's what's so exciting to be part of this and part of this project, because one of my favorite things about working on this project has been connecting with so many other groups and organizations who are all very closely aligned and working towards the same goals and really um, genuinely just trying to improve the legal system and not necessarily pushing an agenda. Um, and I think that was my expectation was that there was going to be so much agenda pushing. Whereas I think that there are a lot of really genuinely good people out there who want to make improvements all around. So I think it is picking up pace. I think it is moving. And I think we're going to continue to see it move much more quickly. But on the other hand, I do think, you know, when you look back and I would say when I started, um, I am a, somewhat of a newcomer to the space when I started really paying attention to what was happening in the legal ethics space. I was right as the um, 2020 commission was coming out from the ABA, and that was in 2012. You know, and they had taken three years, I think it had started in 2009, to look at these rules and say, well, gee, you know, the modern world of practicing law seems to be different maybe than perhaps it was in 2000 or in 1983. So let's see what we need to do. And after three years, there were very incremental changes that didn't really make clear what, you know, one in particular on um, the rule governing competency, Rule 1.1, they looked at that rule and they didn't really change that rule. They changed, uh, I believe they added about seven words to comment six, which said, well, you know, essentially the spirit of it is we recognize that technology is now more of a part of the practice of law. So lawyers, not only are you on the hook for knowing about keeping abreast of changes of the law, but also any technological advances that might benefit your client you need to know about. Right. And so that is not very meaningful regulation, in my opinion, or, or direction. It's not clear what that means. So how it's not clear how that could be serving the public interest. So I think as the newcomer at about that time, to me, it did feel slow and somewhat as an outsider, nonsensical, because, you know, my thought about it, thinking about it was I love rules. I always loved rules. And I love that lawyers should be expert rule makers. So why would this be so difficult? Why was this so difficult to institute change that really it was clear by 2012 you know, so much had changed that surely there was more to be said on this topic other than lawyers, you're on the hook for knowing about technology. And more problematically for me, I'm a criminal defense attorney. In my world, that's burden shifting. You know, that's not giving us a lot of direction about what we need to know. That's just putting us on the hook for something that, you know, especially at that time, we didn't have really any direction as to what that meant as practitioners. So if the practitioners don't understand the regulations, 
how could it possibly be serving the public? Well, we can certainly appreciate that. You certainly uh, poked at a uh, sacred cow of the uh, technology community because that was a uh, hard-fought battle that many of us are glad we at least got that much done. I don't mean to disparage those efforts at all. I mean, obviously, coming in as such a newcomer in 2012, from the outsider's perspective, that was what was difficult to reconcile. But then I later, later did learn that that was not any insignificant effort to get there. (laughs) Well, of course, part of the uh, questions about this is who is seeking change. I've seen some of the loudest voices for change, and and some lawyers, I'll say, would interpret their voices as change the rules so my online uh, legal services can better compete with lawyers. And, of course, lawyers hear that with some measure of resistance. Some people like me that have been the access to justice community probably understand that a little bit more than than others. But are there people that are working for change now? And what would you identify as really the challenges to uh, changing the rules in, in such a significant way? Well, you know, I think that there are there are there are a bunch of different groups and people, and I think the access to justice movement is so um, inspirational in pushing that change because it really highlights some of these problems that are otherwise go unnoticed of how many people really aren't getting access to legal services and how could we push forward on that? And then, you know, obviously you hit obstacles with regulation, and that sort of highlights these issues. But I think that there are those private companies that are pushing for change, and I think it's easy to write them off as just being looking uh, for profit. But really, they are also innovators. And the legal industry in general, I think, really can benefit from that. So I always, you know, if we all agreed about it, then we would probably be doing something wrong. So you want to have people who are pushing the envelope and forcing us to reevaluate our positions because you know, um, the only one thing we know is change is constant. So the regulations really should be changing and keeping up with the change in the world that we see. So I think that that's good to get those pushes. And I, and I think the ABA is working for change. I mean, I don't, as I've embarked on this and really started to roll up my sleeves and get into it more seriously, there are very few people that I've interacted with who have said, no, you know, I think everything's fine and we don't need to change. So I think it's just a question of how people are going about changing. I think April's done really amazing work, and I'm so impressed with their work uh, back in 2015 where they really tackled legal advertising rules and came up with you know amazing recommendations that were well-researched uh, and supported by data. And, you know, those kinds of efforts are really where we're seeing change and and they're making a huge difference. Well, again, we appreciate that. Are there any other challenges before we move on? Well, I I mean, obviously, there's the challenges of the system. There's no one deciding body, right? So it's not that just one or a handful of people need to be convinced. This is sort of a system where we have uh, states that have all been operating on their own systems. And it's funny because one of the things that I got to do over the last six years is go state to state and talk about legal ethics. And of course, before you stand up in a room full of attorneys in any given state, let's say Montana, you better know, you better be familiar with Montana's rules before you try to talk about legal ethics. And so that gave me a really good sense of where these differences are. So it's not that everybody agrees about and has the same regulation. But I think also there's this notion of one thing that's great about legal ethics and reform is once one state stands up and does something, for the most part, it makes it a lot easier for change to come in those other states. But I think one of the biggest challenges is getting over that first initial hurdle of convincing somebody, some state, some Supreme Court to stick their neck out and do something that, you know, the other states are not doing. And that's a really scary thing to do, especially 
if you don't have a lot of data to support the decisions that you're recommending. Well, I certainly appreciate that. And I've joked with lawyers before that they sometimes hear the word innovation and define it as a way to get into unanticipated trouble. So we will always uh, (laughs) help them try to move beyond that. But uh, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the country. Connect your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and the rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit ServeNow.com. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up with the code TDE10. Of course, you can find Clio at Clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. Welcome back to the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our subject is the Data-Driven Ethics Initiative, and our guest is Aaron Gerstenstang, who runs a boutique criminal defense law practice in Atlanta, Georgia, and is also dedicated to helping other attorneys succeed in their practices. So, Aaron, how do you think practitioners today are affected by the current regulatory scheme? I think practitioners are, for the most part, not interacting with it or very, um, they don't feel like they have a voice or power to influence it. And so while we are a self-governed profession, there doesn't seem to be much input from the practitioners. And when rules no longer make sense, there's not really a clear outlet for them. You know, and some attorneys and some firms can afford to take on the state bar, but a lot of attorneys cannot. And I think a really good example quickly of that is a case that came out of Florida a couple of years ago where a firm was challenging this rule that prohibited them from claiming a specialty in, I believe it was mass tort or unsafe product cases. And Florida had a rule that you couldn't claim to be a specialist unless you had the board certification, and these were the categories. And their category of law practice wasn't up for that. So even though, um, and they ended up challenging this, and they took it to court, and the court, you know, held like, look, they are clearly have expertise in this area, but the rules are prohibiting them from advertising and from, you know, proclaiming themselves that. So, you know, you really have to go through, jump through so many hoops to have a voice to challenge these rules that on their face don't make sense as applied. So those are sort of the big issues. I think the smaller issues and the issues that interested me when I first started came to it is we're not getting answers about what the rules are. So questions like, can I Facebook friend my judge? Or when the judge Facebook friends me, can I, is that permissible? Can I have my investigator friend a witness on Facebook? Can I research jurors on LinkedIn? Can I talk about my case if it is part of the public record? Do I have to include my full name and address in a Google AdWord campaign if it links to my website? Some states have answered these questions, but a lot of the states have been very slow to give any guidance or advice. So we have a regulatory scheme that doesn't is very disconnected from the day-to-day practice of law for a lot of practitioners. And Aaron, who are the stakeholders in the data-driven ethics initiative? Obviously, 
obviously the most important stakeholder, I guess, is the public, right? This is what, although a lot of lawyers tend to mistakenly believe that the state bar is set up for them. That is not what the regulation is for. It's not to protect lawyers. It's to protect the public. But obviously, it impacts practitioners. It impacts, I think, regulators, uh, academics have been, you know, talking about and working in this space for a very long time. We now have these relative newcomers with these legal tech companies and, you know, groups organizing around access to justice initiatives. So I think that there are a lot of stakeholders, and I think it's important to not be doing this behind closed doors, but to to make sure that all those voices are heard. How does taking a design thinking approach help, Erin? I'm not sure I understand the design thinking approach. So design thinking is a different kind of problem solving, right? Legal problem solving, as we already discussed, usually comes from historical precedent. We love to look backwards. Engineers take a different approach to solving problems, right? They know, hey, I need to... I need to build a bridge. They have a tightly prescribed constraints from the very beginning. The bridge needs to hold this many cars. They know what the final product is going to look like, and then they need to design within those constraints. Design thinking is different. That's not how designers answer problems. The answer is found during the process. The data talks back. So as we're collecting the data, we're defining what success looks like. And every time we get new data, that will inspire new questions that requires us to get uh, new data. In the legal context, it's funny, this is a really good example. The Florida Justice Technology Center was created by the Florida Bar to create online tools and resources for people to address their civil legal needs. Uh, One of the tools they built, they decided to focus on, was eviction issues in rural part of the state. And they picked the eviction issue because they had data that said this was a big issue for people in this state. And so they built this tool. However, they learned in the process as they're building this tool that those people who needed the legal help, they weren't looking for legal help online. And so that was an iterative process where they had to go back to the drawing books and say, okay, well, we came up with the solution that we thought was going to work. We tried to implement it. It didn't work because of this constraint that we were not aware of. And so let's go back to the drawing board. I assume there's some data out there and you're still looking for other data. Is there data already in existence that will be useful in this effort? That's a very good question and one we were very nervous about when we kicked off this project because there were two hypotheses that we had. One was that data existed. Um, And then the second is that data will be helpful and instructive. So as it turns out, there is data. And the the more we look, the more we find, and it's really fun and interesting data out there. So that's good. And and the real process is sort of grouping it all together and putting it in one place where we can actually analyze it and glean insights from the information that actually is out there, but also allows us to see where the holes in information may be and where we need to go and uncover new data. Before we move on to our last segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Feel like your marketing efforts aren't getting you the high-value cases your firm deserves? For over 15 years, Scorpion has helped thousands of law firms just like yours attract new cases and grow their practices. As a Google Premier Partner and winner of Google's Platform Innovator Award, Scorpion has the right resources and technology to market your law firm aggressively and generate better cases from the internet. For more information, visit scorpionlegal.com forward slash podcast. Is your firm experiencing missed calls, empty voicemail boxes, and potential clients you'll never hear from again? Enter AnswerOne Virtual Receptionists. They're more than just an answering service. AnswerOne is available 24-7. They can even schedule appointments, respond to emails, integrate with Clio, and much more. 
Answer One helps make sure your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call at 1 800 Answer One or visit them at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. Welcome back to the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our subject is the Data-Driven Ethics Initiative, and our guest is Aaron Gerstenstang, who runs a boutique criminal defense law practice in Atlanta, Georgia, and is also dedicated to helping other attorneys succeed in their practices. As you go through this initiative, Aaron, does the legal community, you think, need to commission research to better understand today's legal market? Is that part of the problem? I think it's part of the solution. I think that it is something that we should start doing, and lawyers hate to do this. You know, I, um, as Jim mentioned, I, I get to talk about design thinking for law firms, and one of the key components to running a modern law firm is asking for feedback from clients. Right. And, and as I confess, the first time I did it, the only reason that I forced myself to do it was because I was going to be giving a talk on it. And I, I you know, I, I was like, well, if I'm going to tell other people they need to do it, I need to do it. And it was extremely painful to send out that first survey to clients to get data on, hey, are you satisfied with your services and, and your experience with my law firm? But it's so important to do. And it's so important to do. That's why every time you take a flight, on Delta, you immediately get an email. Hey, we want feedback. How was your flight? How was your experience? Anytime you use any real professional service, you're often getting inundated by those questions. And that's not because, you know, fancy agencies or marketers said this is going to be a good idea, you know, to bring in new clients. It's because that data is actually really helpful in improving those services. So going out and commissioning research and getting that feedback, you know, we have to shake this Lawyers think of, you know, from the 1800s of, well, I, I know what my clients need and I am in the best position to judge how to give it to them. We need to be open to the possibility, just like all other industries are quickly embracing, one of the best sources for if we're getting it right is to go out and get that information from the world. I was recently uh, talking to some folks, some good folks in Utah State Bar, and they actually are running really interesting surveys, and they've done a consumer survey, and then they did a business consumer survey where they are asking the public about how lawyers are serving their, their needs. And I, would, I love that effort, and I would strongly encourage all of the states to start doing that. And it is painful because you don't know what the answers are going to be, and you may not want to hear about the answers. But I think it's very hard for us to sit and rely on precedent only without uh, developing, you know, current and ongoing streams of data so that we, we can evaluate how the rules are working and how lawyers are performing and what we might need to do to better serve the public interest. So I would love for state bars to get comfortable with the notion of running these surveys on a regular basis because we should know that information. And Aaron, how will you determine if the data-driven ethics initiative is actually succeeding? I think it will be succeeding if regulators, policymakers, Supreme Court justices are using the data and finding it helpful and using it in those conversations about reform. That is really the primary thrust of this project is to just, you know, we sort of have a moral imperative, every individual lawyer, you know, because I'm just, I'm just a practitioner. There's nothing special about me, but we all have a duty to make sure that we're living up to the promise that we will be self-regulating in a useful way and we will be serving the public interest. 
And so I think that we'll know if this particular project is succeeding is if it's helping move that conversation along and helping people get to better answers, regardless of what those answers are, getting to better answers that are more informed and not just based on one particular problem-solving tool that we as lawyers love to use as our default, which is, you know, relying on precedent. Well, it sounds like this is going to be a really interesting project and uh, initiative. And I hope you'll stay in touch with us, Aaron, because, you know, we're sort of watching this with fascination. Both both Jim and I have been close to all of this and watching the regulations evolve. And, and we, you know, we certainly think that they need to evolve and have both been a part of that process as well. But this initiative is something new and interesting to watch. And we thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and, and helping us to understand exactly what it is. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. That does it for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Miss Sharon. Happy trails, cowboy. Thanks for listening to the Digital Edge, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway for their next podcast covering the latest topic related to lawyers and technology. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.